the Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that their God had made the universe and that he had made humans, he had made us in his own image. And that he gave us the privilege of knowing and loving him and knowing and loving one another. And then he gave us the responsibility to care for his creation and to develop all of its good potential. But tragically, humans turned on God. We've rebelled against him. We, we've, we've committed treason against the king. And the consequences, according to the Jewish story, have been catastrophic for us and for creation. Now, the Jews weren't blind. They were keenly aware that this good world made by God was off track. In their day, the signs were everywhere. Broken bodies, broken lives, broken systems, broken countries. The whole thing needed fixing. It needed mending. It needed to be put right. But the Jewish people who were feeling the crushing weight of all of this brokenness, they were deeply marked by hope. The Jewish people were people of hope. And where did their hope come from? Quite simply, it came from their stories. If you were a Jew living in the Middle East during the first century, you would have been raised in a culture of storytelling. And by storytelling, I mean not only speaking stories to one another, but reading stories aloud in your meeting houses and studying stories privately and turning these stories into prayers and songs and rituals and celebrating them in national festivals. It sounds like the Messiah, doesn't it? A true story, people. And of all of the Jewish stories, the one they told the most frequently, the greatest story, the most popular and powerful and hope-giving and meaningful story to the Jewish people of the first century and even still today, was the great story of the Exodus. It's the story of an event that had occurred 1,500 years prior to Jesus' time. It's the story that the Jewish people told over and over and over and over. It's the story they celebrated every year at Passover and other festivals they had. They sang it in their songs. They acted it in their rituals. The Exodus. This was the air they breathed. Now, when you heard this story, you would hear about a wicked tyrant, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who had enslaved God's people. And then there was a chosen leader, Moses, selected by God. And he led the people out of slavery to Egypt into freedom. There was a rescue by sacrifice. On their last night in Egypt, God sent the angel of death. And this angel brought judgment on Egypt by killing the firstborn in every house. However, if the house had prepared by sacrificing a lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost, then the firstborn of that house would be saved. 
Then there was the victory of God. God, the greatest king, had fought a battle against Pharaoh. God had hurled plague after plague after plague in his assault on Pharaoh. And ultimately, God had destroyed Pharaoh when Pharaoh went into the Red Sea and God drowned his army. There's the new way of life. When the Egyptian, when the Israelites left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. They, they arrived at a mountain, Mount Sinai. And God gave them a special ritual, a covenant marriage between themselves and God. And in this covenant marriage, God sealed them to himself by giving them his law, which was a new way of life. And then God himself came in the midst of Israel and he went with Israel and he took them to the promised land. Now, this was the story that the Jewish people knew in their bones. They knew it like, you know, your living room. They knew it by feel. They could smell it. They, they knew its textures like, you know, your own furniture and the pictures and the blankets. And like a favorite blanket, this was a story that by the time of Jesus had sustained the Israelites for more than a thousand years. This story with its cruel tyrant and chosen leader with its victory and sacrifice and its new way of life and with the presence of God and the promised land. This story was the very backbone of what it meant to be a Jew. Now turn in your Bible to our gospel reading for this morning. Luke chapter 9. Look with me at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, these words are simple, but they're deceptively simple. One of my favorite biblical scholars says that what we have here is no melody. We have a symphony. Every phrase of this story It's really like a piece of tissue from your body. It is filled with blood vessels and nerves that connect it to the whole rest of Scripture. For example, one phrase. Look in verse 31. It's the phrase that describes the content of this conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. They spoke of his departure. Now, just the noun in that phrase. Departure. Luke's gospel, what we're reading this morning, we're reading it in English, but it was originally written in Greek. And the Greek word there, it's not departure, it's exodus. And they spoke together of his exodus. What does that mean? Well, first, in in this context, it's a euphemism for Jesus' death. Go back to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, 
who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. So if you're reading the story of Jesus' transfiguration in its context, you need to understand that this conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah is focused on Jesus' upcoming death, his departure, his exodus from this world. And so we stand on the Mount of Transfiguration. And our gaze is drawn to another mountain. A mountain called Golgotha. The mountain where Jesus will be crucified. On the mountain of his transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by two people. Celebrated saints. But as our gaze is drawn to the other mountain, where Jesus is also lifted up and is also surrounded, it is not by two saints, it's by two criminals. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' garments glisten in His glory. On the Mount of Crucifixion, His garments are ripped from Him in His humiliation. On the mountain of His Transfiguration, Jesus is confessed as the Son of God by a divine voice from heaven. On the mountain of His Crucifixion, Jesus is confessed as innocent by His executioner, a Roman soldier. Both scenes are witnessed by His followers. The first by the inner circle of His disciples, the second by the inner circle of the women who followed him. You see, Jesus' transfiguration into glory and Jesus' transfiguration into suffering are two sides of the same coin. This is brilliant literature. You're supposed to stand on this mountain and see the upcoming mountain. But why? Why? Why are these two things smashed together that seem to be so different? The glory of Jesus and the humiliating suffering of Jesus. Why are we forced to connect these? Well, to answer that question, we need to listen more deeply to this symphony. We need to hear that this is no ordinary symphony. This is a requiem. And there are other themes at play. And there's that ancient theme. First, it's faint, but it grows louder. And it's the theme of Israel's exodus. You see, the exodus is the key to the relationship between his glory and his suffering. You can't use the word exodus without the Jewish people in that day thinking of their favorite story, their most well-known story, the story that they had in their bones, the, the story that they knew better than you know your living room. It's not a throwaway word. They had other words that they could have used to speak of Jesus' death, but they used this word. And what are they doing? They're trying to get you to not only look forward, To the mountain of crucifixion, but to look backward to the mountain where Israel gathered in their own exodus. And and what we see here is that when we look at the very life of Jesus, we see all of those themes from the exodus 
at play in his life. We see the presence of God. Once again, as in the Exodus, God is now again present in Israel. But this time, it's not the burning bush. It's not the pillar of cloud and fire. It's not a smoky, seraphim-filled vision of Isaiah. It's not the whirling wheels of Ezekiel. It is Jesus himself announced at his birth. Emmanuel, God himself, again with us, just like in the Exodus. Once again, there's a chosen leader, but it's not Moses. It's not a spokesman for God. It is God himself who is the chosen leader. Once again, we have a new way of life. We have the chosen leader going up on the mountain, not delivering the law, not delivering the Ten Commandments. When did Jesus go up on a mountain and deliver a new way of life? In the Sermon on the Mount, where he invokes Moses. And he said, the last time this happened, you were given this law. Let me now give you a new way of reading that law. And once again, we have the promised land. But this time, it's the promised land that's not merely Palestine. It is the whole world. It's the uttermost parts of the earth which had been promised to Jesus as his inheritance. And once again, we have a wicked tyrant. But this time, it is no mere Pharaoh. It is not the religious leaders. It is not the Caesar. No, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus understood himself to be in a battle. Ultimately, not with those men before him. But with the dark power that was behind Pharaoh and behind Caesar. That Jesus is in battle With the anti-creating power. The anti-creation power. The dark power of death and destruction that is corrupting and decaying the whole human race. And once again we have a rescue from this tyrant by sacrifice. And again it's a lamb. And again it's the firstborn. But this time it's the firstborn of all creation who is the lamb. And somehow, Jesus' forthcoming death constitutes the victory. God's victory over the tyrant. So this one loaded word in Luke 9.31, this one word... It opens our imagination and it opens our understanding to see that Jesus' death is the new exodus. And that it is the clue for seeing how Jesus' glory and his suffering fit together. You see, the story the Gospels tell is this. Jesus was fighting a battle. There was danger and threat. My family's been reading through Mark's gospel. And, and, and we read a, just a paragraph each night. And then we go around the room and say, what did you notice? No big Bible study time. Everybody just spouts off what they notice. Shelby tends to notice what everybody else noticed. <laughs> We're only several chapters in. But Janelle frequently has said, every time Jesus shows up, people are fighting him. This is a story the gospel narrates that Jesus was fighting a battle. There's danger and threat and challenge from the beginning. Everywhere he turns, people are pushing against him. They're fighting him. All the strands of evil throughout human history, throughout the ancient biblical story, come rushing together from the demons shrieking at him anytime he walks around them. 
to the sneering misunderstanding of the power brokers, to the frailty and the failure of his own friends and followers. Now, all of these powers of evil have gathered together in order to pull the cosmos and the human race down into the abyss. But all the claim of the Gospels is this. The only way to stop and defeat this great anti-creation power was for Jesus Christ to let this tidal wave of death and destruction do its work on him. So that it would be exhausted. See, it's the Red Sea. But it's not Pharaoh going into it and the Red Sea crushing him. It is the Son of God himself standing there when the waters flood back in. Jesus is the David for the ultimate Goliath. And like David, Jesus is the lone representative on behalf of all of Israel. On behalf of all of those who have been victimized by this Goliath. Jesus stands in for us. Can you see him there? No one else can stand up against the Goliath. And Jesus says, I will. I'll go to that battlefield. And he stands in for us on behalf of us. He's our substitute. And what we have is God himself taking on himself All the darkness and all the death and all of the destruction and all of the evil that has been unleashed in this world. Here is God acting from within his creation to take the full force of evil upon himself. This is unique in philosophy and religion. This is an incredible story. And so this tidal wave of death and destruction crashes over the head of the creator God himself. And this David, the new David, Jesus Christ, loses his life. The five stones of that ancient battle that David put in his bag to kill Goliath. They become the four nails of crucifixion and spear thrust in the side of Jesus. And then three days later, the chosen one who didn't make it out of the Red Sea before the waves came comes back. He comes out of the waves. He's crossed the greatest Red Sea. He's passed through the dark waves of death itself. Jesus has led the way. To see that the death of Jesus is the new exodus. This shows us that the cross is not merely some mechanism for getting you off the hook of your sin. Don't reduce it to that. To say that the death of Jesus is the new exodus. Is to say that the cross is not merely some Example of a benevolent truth about laying your life down for others in love. It is that. But it is so much more than that. It is the moment when all of creation itself 
is led on an exodus from its bondage to decay and corruption and death and destruction. This is the heart of what Christians call the gospel. It's the story of how Jesus took on the evil in our world and defeated it by absorbing it. It's the moment when a great old door that was locked and barred since our very first disobedience. It is the moment when that door finally swings open. And what's behind the door? The garden. But not just any garden. A garden in a city. The garden city that God has always planned and is now inviting us to build with him. At the cross and the resurrection, Jesus was doing more than forgiving our sins. He was changing the fabric of the universe. A door swung open. It really did. New creation really was there. This is why the first people to encounter Jesus mistook him for being the gardener. The new creation is here. The dark power has been defeated. It's been overthrown. It's been rendered null and void. Its legions still make a lot of noise. They still clamor. They still call a lot, cause a lot of grief. But the ultimate victory has been won. This is the vista we see when we stand on the Mount of Transfiguration and we look back at the mountain of Exodus and we look forward to the mountain of the crucifixion. And it's amazing. I mean, I've only scratched the surface. I mean, I haven't even talked about the eighth day. The first line says on the eighth day. Do you have any idea what eighth day means in scripture? It was the day that the priest, after being anointed, could finally enter the holy place. It was the day that the child was circumcised and brought into the new family. It was the day that the man with leper was admitted back to the community. We could go on and on. I haven't even talked about the disciples sleeping. I haven't even talked about Moses and Elijah. This passage of scripture is a symphony. It's it's remarkable. And you know what happens when you study it? You end up being just like Peter. It's so beautiful. Let's stay here. Let's build a mountain. Let's just behold the glory and the beauty of God. Look what God has done. Let's bathe in the beauty of this scene. Let's drown in it. Let's drink in it until the room starts to spin. That's a reference to our Anglican ways. And this is good. This is good. It is so good to behold the beauty of God. But it would be a mistake for Peter, as he was told. And it would be a mistake for you and I to merely gaze upon the beauty. But God God wants you and I to get drunk on it, no doubt. To drown in it, no doubt. But he also wants you and me to actually enter into The new life that his death and resurrection opened. He wants you to actually experience deliverance from all of the dark anti-creation power that is in your life. Look back at verse 22. Peter has just correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah. And now Jesus draws the connection between the glory of God and the suffering of God. Look at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the dark beauty we've just seen when we stood on the mountain. And then in verse 23, Jesus clearly identifies the path that leads you and me from merely gazing on the beauty and actually experiencing the beauty. If any man would come after me, after Jesus, where? Into the new creation. Into the new life, into freedom from bondage, into freedom from the tyrant that is still thrashing about. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, the cross is not only the means of our salvation. It is the way in which we experience salvation. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that you and I could escape the cross. He went to the cross to enable us to bear the cross. That's what this passage says. Now, thankfully, today we stand on the cusp of Lent. And Lent is what we need in order to bear the cross. Lent is what we need in order to enter more fully into the new life. You see, Lent is the 40-day long period of forcing you to pay attention to Luke 9.23. Lent is the 40-day-long period of slow and sustained grappling with the call of Jesus to follow him. Lent is the time when we learn that the name we bear has the weight of a cross. And we need this. We need help to remember that we cannot follow Jesus unless we say no to ourselves and take up our cross. We simply can't. And the upcoming season of Lent helps us to do this. And it helps us to do this in some very practical ways. You see, our great need is to come down off this mountain of beauty and to learn how to actually live this stuff In the concrete reality that we face when we walk out of this room. What we need is to know how we can actually on a daily basis deny ourselves and take up our cross. This is how we follow Jesus into the glory and the beauty of the new exodus. As we prepare for Lent, I commend to you five Very practical actions you can take in Lent so that you can begin to walk in the power and the beauty of the new life Christ acquired for us in his death and resurrection.
five practical actions that will help you and help me to deepen our share in the cross. Why? So that we can deepen our share in the resurrection. Here they are, five practical actions. Um, In your worship guide, there's one of these. Would you look at it? It's actually got two parts. First practical action. Spend time with God every day. Using this or something like it. Okay? Let me show you how to use this. Look at the one, not with all the scripture verses, but look at this one. These are four devotions. One for, mon- one for the morning time, one on the inside for noon time, one for early evening time, one for the close of day. Pick one. All right? Pick one. Some of you might be, have the time. And the, and the ability and the personality to do all four. But just pick one. It might be some of you, you you're going to do this in the morning. You're going to in the morning, stop everything, turn everything off, and take 10 minutes to be with God. Or maybe you can do it at your lunchtime. Or maybe you can do it around the dinner table with your family, the early evening one. Or maybe you can do it at the close of day. Now, my family, we use the one on the very back almost every day. Four or five days a week. We do it at seven o'clock. We eat dinner around six. We do some chores. And then at seven o'clock, we gather in the room. And this is, this is the kind of, we just go through this. Now, when you get to the part that says scripture reading, that's what the other page is. So each day there's scripture. Pick one. You don't have to do them all. You might decide for Lent, I'm going to do the Psalms. Or I'm going to read through the gospel stuff. Or I'm going to read through the Old Testament bits. If you want to do it all, it's divided out. So you can do some in the morning, some in the afternoon. I divide them out over these four devotionals. But I have the type of job that allows me to do that through the day. Most of you don't. Okay? Look, parents, give this to your kid. And and tell them what to do. Highlight all the gospel passages. Tell them to read the gospel passage. Get them to pick. When do they want to do it? Morning? Noon? Evening or right before they go to bed and then highlight that part of the devotional guide. Parents, it's your job to teach your children and to lead them into the faith. This is a very practical way that for from now to Easter, you can immerse yourself in Lent and in the preparation for Easter. Now, look, when you go through it, it's got clear instructions where you get yourself quiet. It's very, very similar to the kind of thing we do here in our service. So the first practical action is. Make a commitment, shoehorn it into your schedule, do a daily devotion. Second practical action, fast. There is no Lent without fasting. I'm sorry. Now, ultimately, fasting is not complicated. It means one thing, be hungry. That's what it is. Look, in the Christian tradition, there's a very practical set of pieces of wisdom when it comes to fasting for Lent. 
There's two kinds of fast. I encourage you to do them both. If you're able. The first one is called the Lenten fast. And this is where you just pick something you're going to eliminate from your diet that you enjoy. That is not going to be overwhelming, but it's going to create a low-grade hunger. So for me, that's caffeine. Because there's a number of pleasures that I really like that all have caffeine in them. Coke, um, coffee, chocolate. So by, by eliminating that from my um, diet, I, the first year I did this years ago, I had like the caffeine headache and all. And I was like laying on the floor with the, the um, washcloth. It hasn't happened since. I'm very grateful for that. But I have this ritual after breakfast and lunch where I drink coffee. And by taking that ritual, that thing away, it creates in me this low-grade awareness that I've changed my schedule. It, it creates this low-grade physical desire. That's called the Lenten fast. Do that. Parents, help your children find an age-appropriate thing to do that in their life. I, I think if a kid's over 12... They should be doing this unless there's a medical reason not to. Now, Janelle last year helped all of our children do this by every day during Lent. They ate rice for lunch <laughs> um, and it created a low grade hunger and and uh, yet they all survived. Your fasting needs to be limited and humble, but it needs to be consistent and it needs to be serious Here's the key. You get it back on Sunday. We don't fast on Sunday. Sundays are resurrection days. So we eat chocolate and drink coffee and drink Coke. And at the end of Sunday, we're wired. Now, the second kind of fast is actually a total fast. And here's the Christian tradition. You start Lent and you end Lent with a total fast. So Lent starts this coming Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. So I encourage you. If you're at all able, don't eat on Wednesday. Don't eat. Have a total fast. And this is going to be hard for some of you or some of you, maybe there's no way you can do it, but you could just give up lunch or something like that. And what these things are doing is they're taking you down into Lent. They're reminding you that you are not, you do not live by bread alone. Now it'll be a fight and you're going to fail. Maybe once or twice or maybe many times. But you cannot make progress in the Christian life without failing. Now, too many people, they start out Lent, all gung-ho, lots of enthusiasm. Then they give up after their first failure. But hang in there, start over. Start over every day if you have to. (laughs) Don't give up, no matter how many times you fail. Sooner or later, you'll begin to notice it's producing spiritual fruit in your life. So that's the second practical thing. I commend to you fasting. Number three, I commend to you the public rituals of the church. The Ash Wednesday service that will be this Wednesday night at 6.30 in this room. And then when we get to Holy Week, there will be a Maundy Thursday service and a Good Friday service. I commend these things to you. Lent is not a solitary journey. These services, they offer a structure that helps us to recover the reality of the cross and the resurrection. Number four. Find a way to create a Lenten atmosphere in your home. Now, look, let me explain to you what I mean. 
Christmas works well because you create a Christmas atmosphere in your home. You do it through music and lights and tree and all these things that at around that time of the year, you go into your home and it's obvious, oh, we're in Christmas. You, look, our culture is not going to help you know it's Lent. That doesn't really help our culture. It's hard to sell stuff to people who are committed to denying themselves. Our culture helps you with Christmas. It will deny you Lent. You've got to do it. You've got to find a way. That's what Rice did in our house. Some people in their house, they stop listening to the radio. Or they stop watching TV after 8 o'clock. Or find a way to, to change the nature, the structure of your home life. So that you have a sense. I'm in a different season. I'm in a, I'm in a lean season. I'm in a somber season. I'm in a season that's driving me into myself. Into my humanity. Some people read Dostoevsky, you know, heavy books, books that make you grieve. I said I was going to do five. That's it. Just four. I give you those because it's the last page of my notes. I don't know how I counted to five, but it just ends with four. I commend to you Lent. I challenge you to not only think it's a lovely verse to take up your cross and deny yourself daily, but to actually make that a concrete reality for the next 40 days. Let's pray.